At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Welcome to American Muse Podcast, where we explore hidden secrets in the landscape of 19th and 20th century American orchestral music. Your host is Dr. Grant Gilman, conductor, violinist, and author based in Atlanta, Georgia. In each episode, Grant unearths a fresh orchestral work by an American composer you may not even know. And by the end, we hope you are a new fan of the composer and their music. Now, your host, Maestro Grant Gilman. Our American Muse podcast guest was recently named one of the top 30 professional musicians by Musical America Worldwide. In addition to her positions as music director of the Allentown Symphony and Garden State Philharmonic, she frequently guest conducts all over the world. Her two books, Beyond the Baton and Baton Basics, are both widely available for purchase. And yes, you can actually get them in physical print if you are old school that way. You can find up-to-date information on her constant activity and globetrotting on her website, dianewitchery.com. Please welcome Maestra Diane Witchery. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Good to see you. You too. I, I know in reality, it's been quite a while since we, we saw each other last, but I feel like it was only yesterday. I was at your home in Jersey categorizing scores and putting business cards into your database, which I swear uh, at the time... Um, I don't know if it's changed or not, uh, but it was either in MS-DOS or Windows 95. It was such an old thing that I was like putting this, this like information into. Um, yeah. And I did get that all changed over to Excel. I figured it was an old program that, that worked well. So I figured why if it's not broken, don't fix it. But right. yeah, eventually I said, man, I got to get this onto something else. <laughs> right. And and then also, you know, so it's helping you transcribe your work missed for, for its world premiere at the time. Um, now that was, that was a lot of fun for me though. I think we went through quite a few uh, tabloid sized paper uh, with all the drafts. Um, That's right. Cause I was handwriting the piece. You um, were handwriting it and I was putting it into Sibelius and I remember like you, you know, you were, you were like appropriately. So you were like, okay, no, no, no. I want to move this one over and I want, I want it to look this way. And, but you like, but you wanted to be able to see it because there's so much music there and so many parts that like you wanted to, so we did the tabloid, you know, 11 by 17. And yeah, there's a lot. I of still pretty- use that paper. I like the look of the paper and I like the, the handwriting of it, but I will say a hundred years from now, 
don't go back to my handwritten scores as the definitive because I always change it in the computer afterwards. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, they're going to find these and go, oh, this is the definitive draft. No, definitely not. <laughs> but I like the look of it still. So, so including Mist, uh, how has your compositional side developed over the years? Yeah, so each piece, I, I, being that I've conduct, you know, full time, I don't have a lot of time to write, but I, I've tried to write almost maybe a piece a year, sort of. Um, I've got seven pieces now for orchestra. And I feel very fortunate my pieces actually are getting played, which is really nice. Um, my Ode to Joy fanfare, actually, uh, which I kind of call Beethoven 9 in a blender, um, was written as an opener for Beethoven 9 concerts. And it was actually programmed quite a bit, but some of those concerts got canceled because, you know, we were all programming for the 250th anniversary and that, you know, Anyway, COVID hit, but hopefully uh, they'll be reprogramming that piece. Um, I have a piece, Concerto for Home Winded Instruments and Orchestra, that's been used for a lot of youth concerts. Uh, my piece, Lamentoso, I mentioned, After the Rain is one of my favorites for chamber orchestra. And then I have a piece called Leaves that came out oh, about a year and a half ago and already got three performances, which is nice. And then I'm working right now on a piece called Summer Sun. So Leaves and Summer Sun are part of a larger symphonic work, almost like a symphony in four movements, but uh, based upon the seasons, obviously. obviously and yeah. So I'm writing them each as works that can be played by themselves, but ultimately can be combined together to, to create a larger symphonic work. Right. So well, it seems yeah, like you're, so going with a, you're going with a theme there, it seems like. Yes, yes, definitely. But, you know, that... that, that kind of makes sense now like going all the way back to mist i mean you you seem to gravitate towards the that that kind of uh, nature aesthetic nature and emotions um i try to capture things in sound and so a feeling an essence um something visual and i try to create it in music so that it can be experienced almost like i'm bottling it up to share with someone a year from now, two years from now, a hundred years from now. Right. You know, I've, I, you can, you can fill in the details, but I do remember, didn't you compose the, the bulk of mist um, in France, right? It was, it was. No, in, actually it was in Italy. Italy I was on Italy. the island of right. Elba. Elba, um, that's right. That's right. In Italy. And there was a foundation there where you could actually go and stay there for two or three weeks right on the ocean. And, and um, they had an Italian cook and a vineyard and it was just really wonderful <laughs> and a great place to be creative. That sounds awesome. I mean, how could you not be creative in that environment? Yeah. So I actually, I went there first to write my book beyond the baton. So I wrote most of the book there. And then later on I needed a, I wanted to go back obviously. And so I needed another project. I thought, well, I've always wanted to compose. Why don't I, when I write a proposal to go and compose a piece. <laughs> so, so speaking of that first book, I, I do remember you, you got um, you got your first or second shipment, and you handed me a copy right out of the box. It was it was <laughs> great. I'll never forget that. And and like, and I'm sure you meant it this way, but I, I still you know I still have it. Like I have very few books left, like physical copy, but. Uh, but I still have that one, and it's, it's still very striking cover, you know, with the belt, the black background, and the and the the baton on it, and everything. Yeah, you know what? My husband actually shot the photograph for that cover. Um, we were working with Oxford University Press, which is the publisher, 
And um, we actually sent that as a, a suggestion of the cover. Because when I was writing the book, he told me he had this image of what should be on the cover. And I said, great, give it to me. And so, yeah. <laughs> nice. So, so how has that book been received? And, and maybe more importantly, how has it been used over the years since it was published? Yeah, so I'm very fortunate to say that the book has become a standard in the industry. Uh, virtually every serious conductor of orchestral music in the United States, I think, owns the book. Um, and also many people in Europe own the book. And I just found out it's required for a master's and doctorate degrees in Australia, which I thought was kind of fun. Wow. Um, so it has had a, a very lasting influence. Um, a lot of people, I've gotten calls, they want it translated uh, into Spanish. We haven't done that yet. But I feel, I feel very happy that the book is helping people because I, I really wrote it to be a guide for conductors when they got an orchestra so that they could have more knowledge about the job off the podium. And so that through that, if they can learn and be better artistic leaders, we're going to have better orchestras throughout the United States and, and hopefully throughout the world. I also use it myself. You know, it's got a resource section in the back that has some really valuable uh, thematic programming and lists of different types of things. So often I'm pulling it out um, for that. Uh, I actually use both my books quite often. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. <laughs> so they're well, kind of timeless. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good that you could you can get it for yourself too and say, you know, what is it? Oh, oh, I have a book for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's got yeah. my name on it and everything. Um, now, of course, I had the pleasure of playing with you a few times in, in Allentown and and even then, I, I remember you you programmed with with quite a unique variety. Uh, we absolutely did parts of the traditional canon, including including uh, the the ASO's first performance of Mahler Five. I even remember I, I had to drop something off at. It may have been like a mist related thing, but I had to drop something off at your at your house one evening. And you came to the door and it was right before we were going to start rehearsals and you just looked so tired and you were like, <laughs> okay, thanks. Thanks. I got to go back and study. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, yeah, that's a big piece. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. It's a lot to take in. I mean, and, and, and like I said, it was, it was, the, you know, you made a big deal out of it, you know, for, for, to make sure people would come obviously, but uh, that it was the ASO's first time. I mean, that, that orchestra it started as a community orchestra, didn't it? Like all those many years ago. Years ago, it was a community orchestra. And even when I started, um, you know, it had that sort of flavor about it. And we've worked for many, many years to build the orchestra. And now the quality level is just exceptional. Our players come from New York and Philadelphia and New Jersey and, and some from D.C. and Baltimore area. Um, but also we have players that that also live in the region and play and, and teach at universities and, and schools in the area. Um, so we've, we've got a great tradition and the orchestra actually became televised about three years ago. Uh, so we have a local cable station, Service Electric, which is actually the oldest cable station in the United States, um, has been filming our concerts, which put us in a pretty good position with COVID because we actually had footage. Um, but it also grew the orchestra because when you know that you're going to be filmed on every single concert, you know, you kind of come with a, a whole different mindset right. um, to the whole process. So it's, it's been really great. 
I mean, probably not even, I mean, obviously you will come with that mindset, but obviously the musicians will also, knowing yeah. that every single one is going to be broadcast, everyone's going to, you know, going to see it multiple times or, or it's going to be out there. It could show up at any time. Your face could be on TV again, or, you know, they could hear your notes. I mean, yeah, that makes sense that like it, it raises the the level, the expectation every single time. That's great. That's great. So, so in addition to those, that, that canon, the, the, you know, the typical canon that we, that we do the orchestral stuff, um, you also had a plethora of concerts with completely new music and, and mostly new music, unknown music, rarely performed pieces. Was that just you carrying out your vision? Did you have significant encouragement from the board and the audience, or was it was it a mixture of both, everything? It's really a mixture. So I work with an artistic committee. Um, so I, I don't do it totally in a vacuum, but I've worked for many years to develop the ears of my audience and to develop buy-in on new music. And I, I feel very fortunate we've commissioned uh, quite a few new, new works now. And it's it's so fun to be able to, to say that you birthed a piece, um, you know, and to be, in fact, right before the shutdown, we premiered a piece by Chris Theophanidis, which I think is gonna be, become part of the standard repertoire. We we commissioned a piece from Erica Wazen, uh, uh, Roberta Sierra, we've commissioned a piece from. We've just got all these wonderful composers out there that we've worked with. We now have a composer in residence, Chris Rogerson, who's writing a piece for us. And I'm excited about that because it's, it will change the world going forward when 50 years from now, 100 years from now, they hear a piece that we had a hand in, in making a reality. So I, so I would say that the board has bought into that and we, we have sort of a formula with, with programming, you know, you need one piece that is the anchor piece, the piece everybody knows. It doesn't have to necessarily be the largest piece in the concert. It could be a short piece, but then that's going to get people in the door, but then you can take them on an interesting direction where the flavors of the concert merge together and to find unique works that I'm excited about that I can share with the audience. Uh, I, I think it's just really thrilling. And, and the audience, you know, so often I think we underestimate the ears and audiences now grew up on very eclectic sounds. So as long as we give them a reference point of how to listen to the piece, I think the audiences are very open and actually really excited about hearing new things and new music. Um, yeah. you, you know that that totally makes sense. I mean, do you think that maybe that has to do partly with that area that you're in? I mean, Allentown is in a fantastic little little triangle area between New York and Philadelphia, and it's a little ways off from Pittsburgh, but you know, it's it's like right there in the middle of. Uh, I mean, for musicians anyway, there's tons and tons of great orchestras right there and lots of people making music all the time or or do you think it doesn't matter do you think that 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 formula will work anywhere if it's done tastefully i think it will work anywhere and you have to realize that we started way back with um i did a fanfares project where i commissioned five or six uh local composers to write fanfares so that began to get people buying in when that when the composer somebody they know and that they've, they've, you know, gone to the grocery store and seen them, you know, that's a whole different relationship than bringing in someone from the outside. 
We've done competitions for students, uh, inviting them to have pieces performed by the symphony. Part of our, our new composer in residence is we've identified about 100 composers in the area. Yes, 100 composers in this region, and we're trying to partner with all of them to get them su to submit scores for our new chamber music series that will all be new music. So it's something that I've built over time. Right. And that, that now it's beginning to take its, a life of its own. Right. Wow. That's going to be a long concert. 100 pieces. I don't know. Well, they, we won't have <laughs> them all play on all of that. Yeah, they have to submit it and their themes and their three different chamber music concerts. And the, the rules are that the piece can't be longer than 10 minutes. And the composer has to be able to attend and introduce the piece. So we're hoping that, that this is kind of be like new music tapas. So you get a lot of different new music all in the same concert, but a lot of personal exposure and time to ask questions and time to mingle with the composers. So, yeah, it's it's a whole concept. I mean, you've been you've been working this this angle, this concept for your entire career, as far as my perspective is concerned, because it's not the first time that I met you, but certainly like just after I met you. The first time we worked together professionally, though I wasn't being paid, but... Uh, I did a piece of yours and you were 11. <laughs> uh, was I 11? I think you were 11. Maybe you were older. Maybe you were in high school. No, I wasn't in high school, I don't think. But yeah, but yeah, in, in yeah. So in Beaumont, the Symphony of Southeast Texas, and, and my dad was concert, your concertmaster, and, and you did that. So it was, what was it, four or five? I can't remember how many, but it was that many of us that were young, really young composers, and it was a... You know, it was a series of, of um, you know, uh, education concerts, but like we were, let's see, was I, no, 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 I wasn't the only one there. So I was there and then there was the, the pianist was there um, and she played her solo that she wrote, right? And then she also did some, um, some improvising uh, you know, with, with on the spot with some melody that somebody gave her or played on the piano or something. Right. And, and then there was the one composer that couldn't be there, but, but she made a video and, and I, yeah, I remember a lot of that. Um, but, but I, I mean, you, that was a, that was like a thousand years ago. I mean, my God, <laughs> am I really that old? No, 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 it's not that it's not that it's that I'm that old. No, uh, no, but I mean, that was, I mean, you know, that was so that was so many lifetimes ago. I mean, you've you've done so many things since then. I've done so many things since then. I mean, and we've just you know, we've just gone on to other other projects, other other things. I mean, we've had other professional interactions since that. Yeah. That were actually proper ones rather than <laughs> that was just me getting a little extra from your your thing that you already set up, but but you were already doing that all yeah. that time ago. And I'm sure that that was already in the works long before that. So, so this is not something that you just came up with out of, out of nowhere. You know, obviously this is, this is something that you've honed and developed for years and years and years. Is there somewhere else that that started from? Was there, was there a particular like moment with, you know, maybe some, sometime in, in, in California in LA that you were like, that's it. That's what I can do that. I can like, I can create that that excitement with this kind of programming, this kind of uh, 
um, way of of uh, bringing in the community this way, or 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 you know, going with good composers or or new composers or whatever. Was there was there something that happened? Um, no, I wouldn't say anything specific, but you know. When you're a conducting student, you always land up, one of the things you always do at any university in the United States is conducting the composer's pieces. Um, so I did a lot of that. And I'm happy to say that many of the composer's pieces that I worked with are still composing and some are in film in LA and some are classical composers, but they're still in the field. I also worked with Yamaha with their uh, junior original composition program. And that's where that pianist you're talking about came from. So for many years in, in Los Angeles, I conducted concerts with the students from the Yamaha program. And I remember even they sent a, they sent a film crew from Japan over to interview me. And it was so funny because they kind of told me ahead of time in English what the question would be. But then they asked me the question in Japanese. And I was really hoping I was answering the right question, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> they didn't translate it right then. Jeez. That's but risky. I remember being so impressed with their young students. Um, and I just, I feel very strongly that the creative process is something we need to always support and encourage. And that the idea of having things on a concert that nobody knows What's going to happen? What is it going to sound like? That mystique to me is a very powerful tool in building an orchestra and building music in a community. And so, you know, we want to utilize that and to have people coming. It's the curiosity factor, you know. And, and I remember there was a piece I once commissioned in Beaumont. And I told people, you know, I don't really mind whether you love the piece or you hate the piece. What I find fascinating is the fact that for three months after the performance of the piece, you are all still discussing this piece in this city. Right. And that's what it's all about. Yeah. I mean, even that thing that, that we did, you know, that, that education thing, my dad and I were on the front page of the paper. I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> Beaumont's not the largest city in the world, certainly not in Texas, but still, still there are enough people in that city that, that that's not a small thing. So so you created something that got, you know, that got enough attention that like that would go. That was that was above the fold. That was my dad and I <laughs> above the fold and whatever. I don't remember the name of the paper, but it was the paper for crying out loud. So so that's that's pretty remarkable that that that. You came up with these these. I don't know. It doesn't seem like it's it's a new idea, but you're definitely doing it consistently enough that that people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's that's I can connect with that. And and, and in, like as you explained before, it's in enough um, relationship with something that they already know that they're going to feel like you're, <laughs> like you're not. Um, you know, taking them down a path that's like we're just going to shove new music in, in your face all the time and you're not going to recognize anything. Um, you know, you're giving it to them in proportion to to other things that they are. They know that they're going to enjoy. They know that they're going to either recognize or they're going to recognize the the affectation of it, you know, with a Brahms yeah. or a, a Beethoven or and, something. And what's interesting is, you know, we've done consistently competitions and calls for scores. I remember having a, a community committee, many of which did not read a note of music, listening to scores and helping judge. 
And, and I would say, you know, I'm interested in your, your immediate emotional reaction and opinion. And I, and it was so rewarding because sometimes you would think, oh, they're just going to go for the very simple March like tune with a melody. And I remember this one time where every single person gravitated towards a piece that was not quite atonal, but close but full of emotional gestures and intensity and very well crafted. And so even though it was an unusual musical language for them and they couldn't read a note of music, they could understand that the craftsmanship was there. And so, you know, so once again, I say, let's, you know, don't underestimate the audience and their ears and take them on that wonderful journey of, of opening up their ears to new and interesting textures and combinations. So let's go, let's go down that road a little bit. So you've been long acquainted with, with Lowell Lieberman and you conducted his piece Revelry uh, that he wrote in 1998, quite a few times over the years, it seems. Uh, certainly it's a, it's a festive atmosphere. It explodes with energy from the beginning. And even so, as it progresses, it has quite a bit of depth. It's got a long lyrical passage and extended section with, with this respective uh, oboe and bassoon duets. It's it's kind of strange, but but it's still you know it's got this lots and lots of um, byplay that happens during the piece, and and just as the tension is increasing to its maximum, Lieberman writes in this this quick little fugue exposition for the strings before driving on to the end. So it's got everything in it. And, and, and then at the same time, like it just takes you in from the beginning and you, you don't leave it. Um, it is quite short and it would fit perfectly, you know, into the concert overture spot on most programs for, but for the orchestra, it is an intense virtuosic seven minutes. How did you come to know this piece and, and program it so often? Yeah, so I think I discovered it relatively shortly after it was written. It was uh, written for the Westchester Symphony. And actually, the Westchester Symphony in New York has commissioned quite a few works. And I'm not exactly sure how I found out about it. It may have been Conductors Guild. It might have been American Symphony Orchestra League. It may have been somebody just calling and telling me about it. But I immediately knew I needed to do this piece because it sort of sounds a little bit, if you know uh, Bernstein's Candide Overture, it sounds a little bit in that characteristic. Um, it's fun, it's light, it's fast, it's furious, but I love the compositional twist. And Lowell has such a great sense of humor. It's actually a 12-tone piece. It's a very melodic 12-tone piece. And if you were read, he writes these very esoteric program notes where he's talking about, you know, the retrograde inversion of the blah, 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 of this 12-tone row that he's created. And then you listen to this piece and it sounds like cartoon music. And I just love that analogy. And so even the last time I looked it up and I did this, uh, last time I did it was in Allentown in, I think, 2013 or 14. And I actually went to New York and got Lowell to do me a little uh, video of him talking about the piece because it's, it's just so fun to hear him describe this piece that's very, very advanced in his compositional writing, but to the audience ears, just sounds like so much fun. <laughs> yeah, I I gotta say, I did not catch the 12-tone part at all. I mean, yeah. it, it didn't even occur to me that it would be 12-tone. Yeah, yeah, you know, I actually have a quote, if I can say, uh, he actually quotes this, and like I said, it's all tongue in cheek, he says, 
uh, actually a series of variations on a 12-tone row, each variation transposed to a pitch level of the successive pitches of the row itself. A dichotomy exists, however, in the set form axis as a horizontal material is triadically disposed on a vertical plane. In addition, a binary part form is imposed upon the primary variation form. So, you know, he's just using Jeez. all this esoteric <laughs> language. And, I, and he's really making a play on the fact that, you know, for so many years, the composers were, many of them were kind of leaving the audience in the dust with these very technical pieces that maybe weren't as successful on the emotional level. Um, so he's just done the opposite. Anyway, you really check out Revelry. It's it's a great concert opener. Yeah. Yeah, I got it. Now I got to meet him. That's hilarious. <laughs> You'll love him. He's so much fun. That's hilarious because that's like by the like third large large word you started saying. I was I even I got a little bit like okay, I'd have to look some of those words up. I'm not even sure where you're going. And yeah, no, but yeah, that's true. Obviously, like you know beyond Ives, after Ives and, and into the 12-tone era, like, they took themselves so seriously all of a sudden that they didn't care about the, you know, anybody being moved by the music anymore. It just had to be completely cerebral. Anyway, that's my take. The, yeah. That's definitely controversial in our business, but I don't really care. I'm glad that, that he he didn't doesn't take himself that seriously, and then he still writes a piece that primarily is moving, yeah. At least in one particular way. And then the other stuff, the 12-tone stuff, it's just a vehicle for, for moving someone. That's the whole point. Um, speaking of which, so you had mentioned uh, your experience with uh, Giancarlo Minotti's Triplo Concerto a Tre. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful piece, and it's so rarely done. Yeah, so let's um, talk about why. So it's, it's three movements. It's... Three movements of three groups of trios, violin, viola, cello, then oboe, clarinet, bassoon, and harp, piano, and percussion. And interestingly, Minotti seems to treat the individual trios alternatingly as solo sets, mm -hmm. and then in tandem with each other, and then in unison with the entire orchestra. So this seems like a... a even just separate from the musical part, like putting it all together is like, sounds like a nightmare. The and logistics yeah. are tricky and you have to have a large stage because you literally have to move everybody and to, you have to make three trios and, and you know, the string trio is not so hard. And even the woodwind trio is not so hard at that piano percussion and harp trio that you have to create a space for them on the stage but I think it's, once again, it's fascinating for the audience to be able to experience the contrasting tonal colors of these three trios as they do alternate back and forth. And the writing is so different than if they were just in the orchestra. Um, I mean, the, the trios are really showcased in a trio situation. And I can't really think of any other piece out there that does this. So it's a very unique piece. It was written in 1970 uh, and Stokowski actually commissioned the work and it was premiered by the American Symphony Orchestra in New York. I mean, yeah, it's described as neoclassical, but it seems to me like there's more layers than that. Like there, there is some obviously classical stuff, but there's also some kind of Baroque stuff in it too. And yeah. there's definitely romantic elements to the it. The second movement is gorgeous. Yeah. Absolutely. 
So, it's so heartfelt. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just tons of characters that are, go all the way through it. Um, you know, I was wondering, did, did you do it only, have you done it only once or have you done it multiple no, times? I've done it three or four times, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, I've done it quite a few times because I, and, and people love this piece because it's, they've never heard it before. And it's so unique. And so there's always something for them to listen to. And there's always something for them to watch. Um, yeah. Is, is it typically that you, I mean, I'm just thinking from a practical standpoint, like that you, did you use soloists from within the orchestra? Is yes. that the more typical thing? Yeah, it's written, it's written, um, if I'm remembering correctly, I haven't done it for quite a while, but that I think then there's only one of the other instruments in the orchestra. So the ones that come out come from your set of double winds. So it's written where you pull, where you feature your members of the orchestra, which I also am very much an advocate of. Anytime you can, you can do something that will feature your members of the orchestra, everybody wins. You know, your audience gets to hear your members uh, in a much more soloistic way. Your orchestra members are thrilled to be able to do this. The, the one thing you do need is the trios do need to get together separately on their own and go through their part because they are quite exposed. Right. Yeah. Right. It's kind of like sometimes, you know, what's often done, I guess, with the, with Schumann's Concertstück, with, with horns are much more cantankerous instrument to play than yeah. most other instruments. Yeah. Uh, I can say that because I live with a horn player. Um, right. now, now, speaking of difficult, difficult instruments and pieces, now I recall playing David Diamond's rounds for strings with you in Allentown. And I remember that not only had, to that moment, now this was a long time ago, I had never heard of David Diamond, but the piece was nasty hard. And certainly, it's his most well-known work, uh, commissioned by uh, Dimitri Metropolis in 1944, who told Diamond he wanted a happy piece. And it's quoted as saying, he said, um, uh, these are distressing times. Most of the difficult music I play is distressing. Make me happy. So he's likely referencing both World War II and the rising, we just talked about, the rising prevalence of 12-tone music. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I'm definitely on the page with him. So, so what was your take on this piece, Ben? Where, what were the challenges in preparing a performance of it, considering it is for strings only? Yeah, and at that time period, um, the so when the piece was premiered, it was very popular. It was played by everyone, but then time went on and it dropped from the repertoire. And so, I think when I programmed it in Allentown, most of the players had never played the piece. And many had never heard the piece before. So you have that challenge of first time through. The piece is very exposed. He originally conceptualized it for a large orchestra. And we did have a, a good sized string section. Um, it's, it's a combination of sort of country fiddling and also a little bit of early minimalism. You know, when you think about it, there's a lot of repeated passages. Uh, then with that extended lyrical line on top. The piece is called round, so obviously you've got melodies that are echoed uh, and passed down through the different instrumentation, um, and you hear that echo. It's it's a wonderful piece. I love it. I actually, it's funny because I bought the music years ago because I wanted to own it, and then I lent, lent it to a friend of mine, and it sort of disappeared, and so I actually bought another set because I feel so strongly about this piece. I wanted to own this piece. Wow. Um, because often these pieces fall, they're, they're published now, but 
but then they don't reprint them. And so then they become rental only. Right. And so I wanted, you know, all of the Copeland's early stuff, if you were smart, if I wasn't around then, but if you had bought the sets, then now they're all rental. Right. Um, so yeah. So I bought actually the set of the David Diamond rounds for strings. You know, the other fun thing is that Lowell Liebelman actually studied with David Diamond. So we, we have sort of a thread here. Right. Um, and then Minotti studied at Curtis. So he was still in this sort of New England composer sort of uh, niche. Right. And, you know, it's funny you mentioned that that he he wrote it. He intended it for a large orchestra because uh, uh, I just talked to, to Gerard Schwartz and, and he said that David Diamond gave him a hard time for when he played it in in the with the with his first big orchestra the Los Angeles Chamber Symphony he didn't use a large enough orchestra <laughs> like he gave him a hard time for that <laughs> so he said don't worry david don't worry david i'll do i'll do a bigger orchestra so they did it in yeah. seattle later and, and they did a much bigger orchestra <laughs> Well, when you've got hard as you know as a string player when yeah. you've got hard parts and exposed parts it gets a, a much stronger richness the larger the string section. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, it, and also, I mean, honestly, it, it, this is this is delicate a little bit, but you know, you, it is it is a tough thing to to say. Okay, let's do an only string piece on an orchestral concert, mm -hmm. not necessarily just because it's only a string piece. But also, you know, not every string section can just handle a piece like that. I mean, maybe because we've all probably played the Chike String Serenade. Okay, it's still very, very, very difficult. But we've all probably played it. So therefore, we can get through, we can make it sound good, and we, we can rise to the occasion. But in this case, and with a lot of these other pieces, if it's only for strings, if it's like, like William Schumann, uh, fifth symphony, like people, they're not going to know it. They're not going to have played it. So, and it's really, really difficult and musically and also technically. And, and the D David Diamond, same thing. It's really technically difficult and most people aren't going to know it. So it is, it is a risk in that particular way to say, okay, do, do we have the personnel that's going to be able to, in a very short amount of time, bring in not just be able to play it that may or may not be the concern it's that are they going to be able to digest this information in our what three rehearsals and three rehearsals maybe you're not even going to do it on every rehearsal so two rehearsals and that boils down to what an hour and a half of yeah. actually playing it so then to be able to not only play it but then really make it happen i mean that is a big commitment so it's not always going to work just because you know, programming it'll work or because you have good string players, but it's, it's still a delicate thing. So, I mean, that's, you know, it could be a risk, but, you know, it can be, it could be worth it. I mean, musically, it can be worth it if it comes off, but it's definitely. Yeah. You know, there's another piece by David Diamond that I like a lot that's not done very often either is his music for Shakespeare. And I remember I actually combined and alternated, uh, between Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet and movements from David Diamond's Romeo and Juliet. And it was very interesting because the audience began to listen differently and began, began to sort of go into a compare and contrast mode because there were enough similarities that they, they were, the flavors really blended really nicely, but enough differences that they began to notice the differences. 
Um, but that's another work by David Diamond that people might want to check out. Right. right. Not done too often. So, so these composers, Lieberman, Minotti, Diamond, are not completely unknown, either before or after their deaths, in the case of Minotti and, and Diamond. Um, yet, the frequency of their pieces being programmed and the familiarity of their names and work is unjustly low. Lieberman is, of course, still writing at a highly productive rate, and both Minotti and Diamond only passed away within the century, 2007 and 2005, respectively. If the passage of time argument holds negatively against early and mid-20th century composers, what are some of the possible reasons for the lack of notoriety for these composers? It's of the highest quality, taking advantage of the American market, living into the time of digital proliferation, et cetera. I mean, we've had all these these advantages that they they are taking advantage. You know, they at least took a little bit of advantage of, and certainly Lieberman is. Why might they not have have much, if any, more success with with their legacy than other mostly forgotten American composers that came before them? Well, you know, it's interesting because even Bach was forgotten at one time. You know, so sometimes it takes hundreds of years afterwards for a champion to come through. It also depends on the number of pieces and the types of pieces they've written. So Minotti actually is not known as much on the orchestral stage, but his Amal in the Night Visitors is part of the core repertoire. So you will see Minotti's name still occurring with certain pieces uh, he actually won a Pulitzer Prize, too. I think David Diamond, because he didn't write as many orchestral works, as many short works, he wrote 11 symphonies, though. But it's harder to program a, a large symphony. And so even though I do a lot of new music programming, I will say that that most of mine are 30 minutes or less, and the majority of them are around 15 to 20 minutes long. Or, or even 12 minutes long, because that's, that's where I have my programming slots. And so composers that have pieces in that length, I think will get more play right off the bat. Um, so even like a Lowell, Leb a Lowell Lieberman with his Revelry, you know, that's a shorter overture. I can program that a lot. Larger pieces, I have to search a little bit harder to find the right spot to put them in. So it's a combination of who's helping get their work out after they've passed away? Is the publisher really pushing them and what pieces they have? And if one can take, get some traction, then people will begin to look at all the rest. Right. Yeah. I mean, so, so of course you, I mean, all of this considered, you will not be held responsible for living composers lacking opportunity for growth. That's, that's <laughs> very clear. So, and this summer you held, the the what I'm going to assume is the first annual composers summer workshop. Uh, yes, in Allentown. Right, it it was online for for obvious reasons, um, and you held it with uh, uh, Allentown's um, composer in residence Chris Rogerson. Is that right? Yes, uh, among other people. Um, so, what was the goal of this workshop, and how did the how did <laughs> slightly interestingly how did the virtual setting affect the event? So I have to say that it was really a benefit in most ways in the fact that originally, so we have a new composer in residence with the Allentown Symphony, and we were originally going to do a three-day in-person workshop, mostly oriented towards 
composers that live within 45 minutes to an hour of the area and probably attracting ultimately maybe, you know, 25, 30, 30 people and doing it in person with a few faculty members. What it morphed into was a four day spread out over, I think, two or three weeks. Um, we wanted people to have time in between, but with an amazing world-class faculty. I mean, faculty that I, I, it was a dream faculty. So we had, we, we, we have a local composer consortium of eight faculty members that are at universities and colleges and high schools in the region. And I pulled them for ideas of what they thought their students would be interested in if we were going to do an online workshop. And what came up was writing music for video games, film and documentaries, because they felt that this was areas that they actually had no experience in and that a lot of their students were interested in writing in these areas. So we got Tommy Tallarico, who's one of the top video game writers in, you know, music writers in the industry to be one of our guests. We've got uh, Garth Neustadter, who's won an Emmy already and, and is writing for film. We've got Roger Neal, who's doing a lot of film music and documentaries. We got Amanda Harburg. We got Chia Toscanini, the vice president of ASCAP, talking about you know, ASCAP and we got Deidre Chadwick at BMI. Just amazing guest speakers to bring a, a wealth of knowledge. So I think even next year, even though I still hope we'll have a, a component in person because what lacked was that, that personal bonding that's so important. But what we might do is a one day in person to get that personal bonding, but still take advantage of having faculty that are just exceptional in what they have to offer that we could never, you know, we could never get their schedule to, to fly them to Allentown to get them, you know, there. But if we do it through the internet, it opens up a whole nother world. So we even had career things. We had Astrid Baumgartner and David Cutler. They're both authors of very famous books um, about careers in music. And yeah, so it was, it was, it was very, very exciting and a, and a good way to start with our new composer in residence. Yeah. I mean, that's, that sounds like, like <laughs> that's exactly what you want to get out of it. If you're, if you're just starting out or you're, you're up and coming, you want to get, you want to get it straight from the people that are doing it on the highest level. Right. You know, you want to get it exactly what they're doing. Thank you again for joining me. This has been a pleasure. We haven't done any podcasts yet specifically on, on these composers as a subject. So, so this is, this is going to serve as a great appetizer for all of those. Um, I do want to remind everyone that you can find uh, pretty much everything Diane has done or is up to, or is about to do, uh, <laughs> which is always a lot at, uh, on her website, dianewitchery.com. Um, so thank you, Diane. And I'm thank sure you. next time I say this to everybody, but it's true. Next time I'll bring the podcast to you. So <laughs> great. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you. If you like what you have heard and want to support the advocacy of American orchestral music, please consider signing up to donate regularly at patreon.com for our continued production of this podcast. Also, subscribe for updates wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. 
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.